This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Psalm chapter 119, verses 17 to 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. Thank you for braving the rain apocalypse to come out here. Um, Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I give thanks. I thank you for your word uh, as we just prayed. Let it be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. I pray that you would, Lord, give us eyes as the psalmist prays that can conceive and comprehend and understand your word. Give us minds that can get our heads around it and give us hearts, Lord, that rejoice in it and desire it. Give us mouths that proclaim its glory. Lord, I pray this morning, let your Holy Spirit be amongst us, working in ways that we never thought possible. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. You know, at at the beginning of his ministry, um, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and right afterwards, he heads out into the wilderness to spend 40 days in fasting and in prayer. And most commentators point out that he's actually acting out uh, the story of Israel that we're reading about in Exodus. He's coming through a baptism in the water, like the Red Sea, and then he's going, instead of 40 years into the wilderness, he's going for 40 days to fast there. And it's there that Satan, the great adversary of the Bible, meets him to tempt him in very strategic ways that are meant to undermine his earthly ministry. He does it like this. He says things like, Don't try to make your kingship known through resurrection and ascension. Try to make your kingship known by jumping off of the top of the temple. You know the angels are going to catch you, Jesus. And in a very public place, they will see the son of the carpenter, the Nazarene, lifted up by angels. That's how you should make your kingship known, not through death, resurrection, and ascension. He says it's good for people to worship you, but... Don't have them worship you because of your sacrificial death and the gift of your spirit. Have them worship you because you bow down before me and I give you the nations of the world. Okay, so you see how Satan is trying to undermine Christ's earthly ministry and what he was called to do. And Christ answers him each time with a text of Scripture. And they're texts that are particularly chosen to meet that exact temptation. So if you remember the first temptation, you know that Satan coming out to the fasting Christ, who's hungry, who's longing for some kind of food, he says, Jesus, you know that you can turn these stones into bread, turn them into bread, stop the fast. You don't have to live out some kind of type of Israel here in the desert. Go ahead and eat. And notice how, Je- how Jesus responds. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, in which Moses is reminding the Israelites in the wilderness of what their real source of life is. Christ claims this verse as his own. He says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
What I want to talk about this morning is what that means. For God's Word to be our source of nourishment, for His message, His self-revelation to be for us food that sustains us in life. It isn't an easy saying. How do we live by every word that comes out of God's mouth? Is it some sort of mysterious arrangement? How can words feed us? How can they nourish us? And what in particular about God's divine word sustains us in life in the way that Jesus is saying? Well, I think this is the question that the psalmist, the author of Psalm 119, is addressing in the 176 verses and the 22 stanzas that he puts together in this psalm. This psalm is really a sort of meditation. It's a poetic essay meditating on and exploring the reality of God's Word as a nourishment and a food and a strength along the way. I think the first thing that strikes us about the psalm, apart from its length, it is the largest psalm in the Psalter. But I think the first thing that strikes us as we start to read it is the tender and the personal tones that the psalmist strikes as he's speaking about God's Word. For the psalmist, God's Word is not simply a religious book. It's not an ancient manuscript that is distant from his own time and space, but rather God's own Word, which means nothing short of God's self-revelation, God's self-recognition and self-expression, the disclosure of his self and his heart. For the psalmist, God's Word is a result of divine a divine act of God revealing his heart to the one he loves. For that reason, following God's word is not mere cold adherence to a written document, but a person-to-person address. At once, it's a letter of the lover of your soul to you. It's, It's a note that a soldier clutches in his hands, reminding him of the one at home who's waiting for him. For the freedman, it's the emancipation papers that he holds close because they secure his freedom. For the one wandering in the desert, it's the map that was given by the one who knows the way and he knows the path. What power, what sweetness, what efficacy the word of God has springs out of the living God who breathes its words into existence and breathes them into our own private spaces. The word is fundamentally relational. It's a disclosure, it's a disclosure of God's heart, as I've said, and it demands a similar, similarly personal and passionate response in worship. See, the psalmist yearns to meditate on God's word, but he knows that it's not a one-way arrangement. Instead, God's revelation naturally flows into a response of worshipful prayer. The poet Mary Carr writes this about poetry and prayer. She says, Poetry and prayer alike offer such instantaneous connection. They are one person groping from a dark place to meet with another in an instant that strikes fire. The psalmist revels in this symbiotic relationship between God's self-disclosure and the psalmist's response in disclosing himself. He rejoices at the thought of a God that gives of himself, and the psalmist responds in kind by self-giving, And the result is that a light erupts in the darkness of his alienation and his isolation on the sojourn. This is why, because the psalmist knows that to love the word is to love the word 
giver. Psalm 119 teaches us that as God's self-expression, as God's self-expression, the word as it's described in Psalm 119 does point us towards something different. You see, when I read the Old Testament and I teach it in class and we read it here together, we can't help but read it like the apostles read it with the glaring face of Jesus Christ standing, the reality of his resurrection standing in front of us. And so as I read Psalm 119, I cannot get the face and name of Jesus Christ out of my mind. When he speaks of this personal relationship that he has with the word, it makes me understand just a little bit more, because it's still difficult, what John the evangelist means when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh. And his name was Jesus Christ, and he dwelt with us. I see the psalmist intuiting and yearning for the reality of Jesus as he yearns for God's word. Well, throughout Psalm 119, we come across eight Hebrew words that are basically used as synonyms to talk about God's word in particular. And they can be roughly translated like this, command, covenant, statute, judgment, Word, speech, or saying, instruction, and testimony. And he really uses them interchangeably like synonyms, all together referring to this entire edifice, this entire reality of God's self-expression. Now, we know little about the historical context of the psalm. Commentators have offered a variety of best guesses as to who wrote it and when they wrote it and, and what their situation was, but it's all in the end speculation. We can only draw a couple of conclusions. For instance, we can see that one of the key metaphors of the whole psalm, one of the key images that he uses to express his love of God's Word, is the image of sojourn. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm a sojourner on the earth. The psalmist describes himself as a foreigner, a refugee in a foreign land. Whatever situation he's experiencing, it feels to him as if he is the stranger, as if he is the different one. He is the other. He is the alienated soul. And he senses that that difference between him and those around him is the cause of the ostracizing that he experiences. He's also presumably a person of high station because when he talks about his attackers, we find that they are similarly people of high station in life. The term princes in verse 23 doesn't need to refer just to members of the royal family. It can be any governing official. It can be something like noblemen, okay? Anyone who exercises executive authority in the community. And whoever they are, they conspire constantly to oppose him openly and unfairly. But in this experience of isolation and disenfranchisement, he finds consolation and relief and identity and legitimacy and ultimately healing in the word of the life-giving God. One message stands out to him in his situation. One message strikes him. He realizes this, that if he is to survive, he must know God. And if he is to know God, he must know God's words about himself. That is for him what it means to be a people of the message, a people of the book. So in this passage, we read the psalmist as he talks about the function of the word along life's sojourn. How does the, work, how does the word 
play a role in the hostile and dangerous setting of the sojourn, of being in the strange land. And he comes to this conclusion, at least in this stanza, that God's word is the aim, it is the aid, it is the defense, and it is the delight of the sojourner. It is the aim of the sojourning, the goal to which he sojourns. It is the aid of the sojourner along the way who finds himself alienated in the land that he lives in. It's the defense of the sojourner against those enemies conspiring against him. And it's the delight of the sojourner away from the joys of home. And as the aim, the aid, the defense, and the delight, God's word meets the fundamental human need for purpose and meaning, for encouragement and sustenance, for safety and security, and for joy and worship. Finally, without God's word as the aim and the aid and the defense and the delight, the sojourning of the human life ultimately becomes aimless and lost, starving and thirsty, fearful and uncertain, and joyless and unsatisfying. So first let's talk about how God's word is the aim, the goal of the sojourner's life. Look at what he says in verse 17 and 18. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Comparing life to a sojourn in a strange place can be common parlance in modern day talk about the human life, particularly about the spiritual life. It's actually become somewhat of a cliche, which I think perhaps indicates how much Western thought itself is formed by the shapes and the metaphors of the biblical world. So what drives us forward in the sojourning life? What do we aspire to in this life? To what ends are all of our means directed? Or to use a paraphrase of Psalm 119, when I'm given abundance, when I am dealt bountifully with, what do I use that abundance for? The psalmist's answer is very clear if perhaps somewhat unexpected. He asked the Lord to treat him well, to bless him bountifully in a very particular way that will allow him to live just a little bit longer so that he can pursue God's word. Just a few more moments to listen to the whisper of the Lord in his ear and respond in worship. When he asks God to deal bountifully with him, he's asking for abundance, but not so that he can revel in the abundance, whatever that abundance might be, but so that he can live just a moment longer and more deeply experience God's word to him and experience the life that flows out of that. He also asks for sight, perception, the ability to see things clearly and openly so that he can better comprehend and understand God's Word. He understands that God's Word is wonderful and it's rich and it's deep and profound, so much so that he needs God to open his eyes so that he can fully comprehend what is being said. And I think you find Paul, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, echo this in Romans 11 when he says, how unsearchable are God's thoughts? How unknowable are his ways? Who's been his counselor? If we're to know anything about God, even in his self-expression, it will only be through the Spirit opening our eyes in such a way that we can rightly comprehend what he is saying. Note also that this is a simple confession about the meaning of life. It's almost absurd in its simplicity. There's 
There it is for all of us to see. The meaning of life for him is to live longer and pursue God's word. There's no mysterious grail quest for him to find the meaning of life. There's no wise man who's hidden away in the wilderness who only disperses wisdom to those who are willing to make the journey. It's right there for us to see. No one has to ascend to heaven or descend to the depths to find it or go to seminary for that matter. Theological education is a wonderful thing, and sometimes it can make you feel like a sojourner. Can I get an amen? But it rarely, I think, reveals something that is altogether new. The Bible is an incredible document in that way. It makes sense to a child, and yet a scholar can spend his whole life mining its depths and never get to the bottom of it. My experience, theological education, like the type we have at a seminary, rarely reveals something altogether new, but rather it enlivens and it deepens and it makes more vivid understanding of those beliefs that are basic to the Christian life. One of my colleagues there, another teacher, says that for him, theological education was like going from black and white TV to high def 3D. You know, it's the same show, but you're just experiencing it in a different way. I think pursuing the word is the aim of the faithful life because it is to pursue the Lord himself. It's a simple confession of that faith. But it's not just the end. It's not just the goal or the aim of the sojourning life. It's also the aid along the way. Look at what he says in verses 19 and 20. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I think it's a truism to say that human life involves a sense of lack. I think that goes without saying. There's a sense that we all have a realization of need so that the life of unbelief, which is so much of human life, is often spent ignoring and downplaying and finally trying to rationalize our own inadequacies. We need sustenance along the way. And the sooner we realize that truth, the sooner we lay hold of that, the sooner we can find the strength to survive in the sojourn. You know, when I was in middle school, I, I, I discovered and fell in love with you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, okay? And I devoured it, and I didn't mind looking like a geek carrying it around with me. And I even read it for every three years afterwards until my late 20s. And for some reason, I stopped when the movies came out. I honestly don't know why. I didn't even realize it until I was writing this sermon. I thought, why did I stop doing that? But I did. Devoured the books. If you don't know the story, the basic, it's basically multiple threads all revolving around this unassuming creature who is a hobbit who is called Frodo and his travel companion, Sam, and they're on this journey to destroy what is the greatest source of evil in his world, uh, kind of embodied in this magical ring. And along the way... He and Sam are nourished by what is called whey bread. It's a bread that's given to him by these statuesque and magical elves. And they, no matter how dark things get, and things get pretty dark in the story, they find nourishment in this whey bread. But it nourishes them not just because it feeds them physically, but they notice right away that when they eat it, it reminds them of another place. No matter how dark the world is around them, it reminds them of a better country. And in doing so, it fortifies their souls and it gives them resolve and hope 
in the face of darkness and danger. The way the psalmist describes God's words reminds me of the way Frodo describes waybread. It's a sustenance that nourishes the soul because it brings memory and anticipation of home. See, we're sojourners, but through God's word, our real home reaches out and touches us. God's word whispers to us of another country, a better country, our home, and the psalmist longs for it like a hungry man, longs for the nourishment on the journey. Like a weakened traveler asks his guide, tell me about home, Lord. Remind me what we're doing here. When we find ourselves on the sojourn, victims of alienation and isolation, we are called forward by that rumor of a better country, by that rumor and that hope of what that what should be, will be, one day. Well, it's not simply the aim and the aid, but God's word is also the defense in the face of opposition and attack. Verse 21, he goes on, he says, You rebuke the arrogant or insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. See, the the psalmist is not alone. Verse 63 of this psalm, actually, he talks about how there are other sojourners on the way, and he, he seeks to spend time with them. That's another aspect of this whole sojourn, being collective gathering of sojourners together, rejoicing in God's word. So he acknowledges that there are other sojourners, but there's also other bandits and thieves on the way. They set out to discourage the sojourner to fail, and the instruments... Their instruments of discouragement are false accusations. They heap scorn on him by telling lies about his failure. Just as God's word guides and sustains his attacker's words, seek to mislead and weaken him with their contempt. These attackers are not to be mistaken for other sojourners. They aren't just mistaken, but rather they're insolent and proud. They're confident that they have a better way that God's word and God's way is empty and false. That word accursed that's used to describe them is a very strong word in the Bible. Accursed talks about those who have embraced death at the expense of life. These aren't misguided friends as, or frenemies, as my seven-year-old daughter told me. These are not seekers either, but rather they are those who have made their decision. Okay? And because of that, their lives and their words are infused with death. Their lives and their words are infused with failure. Every decision they make moves them deathward. They chatter incessantly in efforts to disparage and discourage the sojourner along the way. But for the psalmist, his defense is in the truth about God's word and what God's word says about justice. This is the power of the defense of God's word. It speaks eternal truth into momentary situations. It speaks eternal truth into momentary situations. It lays hold of the fear of failure and annihilation with the steel grip of the truth about eternal life. Make no mistake, clinging to God's word is not a matter of ignoring your enemies. It's not a martyr complex. There's no martyr complex on the sojourn. 
Instead, there is a reliance on God to be truthful about the justice that he speaks of in his word. And that's both parts of the justice, the reward and the punishment. As we talked about last week, as Ted talked, we not only need this to, to be true, we need to want this to be true, to make sense of the cross. God's word provides hope in the promise that oppression will not stand forever and that all oppression will be answered, either in the judgment of the oppressor or in the death of Jesus Christ to whom the oppressor turns. But all oppression must be answered. All of it must be ended. See, the psalmist knows that the eternal, undeniable, and unwavering truth of God's word means that he will be defended and protected even into death. Because he knows that God's word speaks to us of the life-giving truth about death, that death is the gateway. It is the servant of everlasting life. This is not, by the way, that life is, or death is life's great change agent. That may make sense to a 56-year-old man, but it does not make sense to a mother who's just lost her daughter to cancer. Life is not a change agent. That's cruel and dehumanizing. But rather, through Christ's death, death is turned on its ear that the grave has become the soil of new and imperishable life. For those who are in Christ, those who deserve judgment as oppressors are redeemed into the sojourn, and they have a royal inheritance awaiting them. That truth is the ultimate defense. But God's word is not merely the aim and the aid and the defense of the sojourner, it's also his delight. It says in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. He's speaking here of a heart transformation that comes from trusting in the word of God in all the ways that we've just discussed. If you trust in the word as an aim and a goal of life, if you find your deepest nourishment there, if you trust in its truth as your defense, you'll find your heart conformed to it in such a way that your heart leaps for it. You delight in it. To put it another way, when the word of God confirms to you itself as a guide and as nourishment and as protection, you will find that it is only natural and appealing and appropriate to respond with delighted worship. And the delight that comes from the word is heartfelt and is joyful and it's satisfying. I think when we talk about a lot of the pitfalls of the Christian life, what we're often talking about, if we really listen to our concerns, we're talking about a lack of delight. In seminary, there's a constant concern for over-intellectualizing the study of God's Word, and that's a good concern. But I often think, as I hear it described, the over-intellectualization occurs when people appreciate the close study of God's Word without delighting in it. I think that Much of what we call legalism is someone who is pursuing personal holiness without the delight that comes from the grace expressed in God's Word. When we talk about cold formalism in worship, we're often talking about a version of worship that lacks delight in God's Word. When we talk about hyper-therapeutic cultures, we're talking about a way of caring for one another that lacks delight in God's Word. And delight is a matter of, a heart, of the heart. 
To, del- to delight in God's revelation like the psalmist, we need to see our hearts change into the kind of hearts that delight in God's will. You know, when I married my wife Jennifer 11 years ago, I thought I knew what it meant to delight in her. And I did delight in her. But now looking back on it, I realized that the joy I had over my wife was vibrant, but it was also thin and unreliable and lacking in deep understanding of just how much I had gained in my marriage to her. Yes, I delighted in her. I realized that I had married up big time. But I didn't know, or I didn't really know, what a delight my wife would be until I had been married. We had been married for several years, and we had put in the time and the desire and the interest, and we had seen each other's faith and character and honesty confirmed over and over again. And it wasn't until then that my heart really began to realize the delight I had in my wife and the way that she was forming my heart. It's not an accident that Paul says our, relation, our marriage relationships can be and should be modeled on the relationship between Christ and his church. Because I think it gets to the relational aspect of God's word in us but in a more intimate way because God's Spirit comes into us and indwells us and forms us and shapes us with, with, from within. We bring nothing to our relationship with God but our own disbelief, our own disobedience, and our own failure. And of course, we gain nothing less from our relationship with God than the inheritance of the sons and daughters of a divine king. Living in that truth starts to change your heart so that you desire what your king desires and you desire what his words express. Well, lastly, I want to point out there are a lot of false aims and aids and defenses and delights that vie for our attentions, but all of them fail, every one of them. Yeah, I strained my knee last week in a failed effort to start running again after a period of time of just being lazy. And I strained my knee, and I found myself sitting on the couch, icing it in pain, and I'm clicking through the TV, um, just kind of trying to find something to watch. And I came to one of those shows about, uh, you know, uh, it tells the story of an individual who had survived some kind of horrible experience. It was called something like, you know, I, I, I should be dead, or I shouldn't be alive, or what the heck was I thinking, or something like that. And so this one told this story about a parachutist who's parachuting over the sea, apparently, and his plane goes down off the waters, uh, in the waters off the coast of Costa Rica, and it's, it's stormy outside, and he can't see where the coast is, so he has to wait till night, and then when night falls, he can see the lights of the coast along the horizon, so he just starts swimming in the darkness, and what he knows are shark-infested waters, and the currents drift him into a school of jellyfish that sting his body and, 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 and leave him with blisters and sores. He's exhausted and he's in pain and then suddenly he sees this thing floating through him in the dark, floating to him in the darkness and he kind of resolves it's a shark and this will end it. And then it bumps into him and he realizes it's a huge log. And so he climbs on top and he falls asleep just exhausted. And when he wakes up in the morning, it's clear and he can see the shore. It's only a few miles away and so he starts swimming for it and pushing the log along with him as he goes. And when he gets tired, he takes a break and he sits on the log. And then when he gets energy back, he starts swimming again. And he notices that he's making some pretty good 
Um, uh, he's making good headway, good progress. The shore is getting closer and closer until suddenly around noon he has the horrible realization that the only reason he was making progress was that he was coasting on the incoming tide. And as the tide shifts and starts to go back out, he watches the land get farther and farther away. He also comes to the realization that if he were to swim, he could probably make it. But as long as he's pushing this big log, the log is going to go where the tide goes. And so he has to finally push the log away and make the swim on his own. I think that we have many alternatives to God's word on the sojourn. Alternatives that promise safety and maybe even momentary relief and rest. They promise protection and certainty and even pleasure, but sooner or later we learn that we have to leave them behind because they are working against us. In fact, if we don't leave them behind, they'll kill us. We call these alternatives idols in the Bible. They promise momentary relief, but they ensure lasting pain and suffering. And all of these alternatives to God's life-giving word are, by definition, epic failures. There is, however, a God who speaks, and his words make sense of the sojourn. His word makes sense of our lives. What he says is the true aim, and it is a reliable aid, and it's a trustworthy defense, and it's a joyful delight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you a prayer of thanksgiving and supplication, giving thanks for the words that you have given us, that you have chosen not to be a God who is silent, not to be a God who lets us figure things out on our own, but a God who has reached out and touched us, who has cared enough to reveal his heart to us and to show us the way through the sojourn. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would leap with joy through the Spirit awakening in us a desire that we cannot explain and that we can't put our finger on. I pray that you would draw us to your word and draw us to the word, our Son, our Savior, rather, your Son, Jesus Christ. I give thanks to you for him. I give thanks to you for his work, that the word was not happy to stay just a text, but that the word became incarnate and walked among us, taking our place on the cross, and taking upon himself the judgment that we deserved. Give you thanks. Help us to live more vibrantly and understandingly in that light. In your son's name we pray. Amen.